There you go. You just type in edit and you mess up and then you're yeah. good to go. It's kind of magic. Yeah, or if someone else says something you don't like, you just type edit. <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> so uh, animatronics, you sold mortgages, welding. Are you the Batman? Just asking. <laughs> Am I echoey? It's very echoey here. Just furniture in my house. Lightly. Just a little bit, yeah. But, but it's not off-putting. It okay. Yeah, we're going to stay it's here. Okay. Yeah. I'll just try to pitch my voice very low. No, I won't. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. We have a really exciting episode for you guys today. We have some very special guests, but before we introduce them, I will say welcome to our fabulous panel of hosts. We have Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. Hi, Lars. And Stephen Nunez. Hello there. Hey, Stephen. Welcome. Um, before we move on, we will give a shout out to our fabulous sponsor, Groxio, which you guys know is Career Fuel for Programmers. We sadly are not joined um, by the one and only Bruce Tate today, so we can't have a word from our sponsor. But I'm sure that all of you guys are absolutely dying to know what's going on with Groxio. So you can head over to their website and check it out. Uh, let's see, what else do we have for today? I think that we're just going to jump right into it today. I am really excited to introduce our guests. We are joined by Jeffrey Matias. Hey, Jeffrey. Hi there. And Andrea Leopardi. Hello. Hey, Andrea. So these two are some of the great minds behind Community. Uh, you may have heard of it. If not, check it out. They are the co-authors of Testing Elixir, which comes out or is out actually uh, at Pragmatic Bookshelf. So uh, you know, I obviously have no vested interest in you guys buying Pragmatic Bookshelf books. I just recommend it because I know that it's excellent. Uh, and we're very, very excited to hear from you guys today and learn about some of what you've been working on at Community. Uh, there's a particular project that I really want to dig into that I was excited to hear about. But first, I know that our listeners are dying to know a little bit more about you guys. So maybe starting with Andrea... Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, cover anything I may have missed. And we always really love to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about how they got involved in the Elixir community. Sure. Um, so I'm Andrea. I'm uh, based in Italy. I'm from Italy. I live in central Italy. And um, I've been using Elixir for uh, seven years now, I think. Um, I've been uh, in the Elixir core team for about five years. So I've not been a programmer in this industry much longer than that. So I've used mostly Elixir. I've done a lot of uh, backend um, development and I've uh, moved into kind of more architecture um, roles uh, recently in the last maybe two or three years. Um, I've, I've done a stunt in uh, management as well recently, but that's kind of ending. So I'm going back to the architecture roles. Um, I got started with Elixir because uh, it was very fun to use. Uh, I was looking in kind of like really uh, looking into any programming language that I could find. I was very hungry and curious. Uh, so I tried a lot of them uh, just for fun. I was not even working, I think, at the time. Uh, I was just out of university. So uh, I just kept trying. And I actually met Elixir when it was not 1.0 yet. And I felt pretty frustrated that it was pretty unstable at the time so I even dropped it and then I, I then I bought the programming elixir book I got into it a little bit more when 1.0 was released and then I really I really liked it I started contributing to documentation first and then started contributing to the ecosystem a little bit and uh, the the community was super super welcoming just I was uh, 
exceptional at uh, really like luring me in in the best possible sense um, and kind of getting me excited about working on uh, on the open source stuff. So since then, I've been involved quite a lot with open source Elixir and been working with Elixir since. I've done a bunch of conference talks, bunch of uh, trainings, stuff like that. And now we ended up writing a book, which is nuts. So yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna I'm gonna quiz you a little bit more about your book writing experience uh, over the course of this episode because I know it definitely does feel crazy to have gone through that process. But before we get too much into the details, um, Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about yourself. And as always, we love to hear a little bit about how you got involved in Elixir. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll cover how I got into programming. That'll tell you a little bit about me. Uh, before I was working as a, a software engineer. I had a bunch of different careers. I was an auto mechanic um, and then a vintage Vespa mechanic, which was an absolute blast. There was a short stint making monsters for haunted houses. I was welding the, uh, the steel frames for inside the animatronic monsters. Uh, I'm going to have a, few a years lot of more- questions about that. We're going to have to <laughs> put a pin in that. Uh, spent... Uh, a few years in the mortgage industry, ended up as a furniture designer for a while, um, and then landed in software, loved furniture, but was struggling to support a family with it, um, and found that software actually scratched a lot of the same itches. Um, predominantly worked in Ruby uh, for the first part of my career, and during that time, Jose Valim came through at one of the Denver, uh, which is where I'm based, one of the Denver meetups, and introduced us to this language that he was working on Elixir. And at the time it just right past me. Like I couldn't understand why everybody around me was so excited. And I think it was because I was still new enough into just learning um, programming in general that like Ruby still felt like this big open world that I got to explore. But uh, a year ish later, I think I was starting to feel like every time I wanted to solve a problem in Ruby, somebody else had already solved it. Um, and that kind of, and I was also starting to deal with um, an interest in concurrent uh, design and Ruby was just really not, actually there's plenty of things you can do with it, but everybody's really fearful around it. And so I kept, uh, I was never able to do anything in production that actually ran things uh, concurrently, no matter how safe I, I, I made it. Um, so it kind of got me in 2014, I was at Elixir, or sorry, RubyConf um, in San Diego and a guy named, oh my goodness, I'm going to get this wrong. And he's one of my favorite human beings in the whole world. Um, in fact, I'm just going to grab it real fast because I'm uh, nervous. You got to get people who quote, like gave you quotes for your books names, right? Right. <laughs> so now I can't find the quotes on the book. Well, Ben Tan is how he's known. That's actually, uh, so, um, and he was the, the author of the, the Little Elixir and OTP guidebook. And at the time he wasn't the author of that, but he was presenting why he liked Elixir and it's Benjamin Tan Y. How, I think. Um, but um, he, uh, he was presenting why he was interested in Elixir at RubyConf and, and something about that conversation just clicked for me. Like his enthusiasm about it, uh, the, the, the language creator didn't really, you know, do anything for me when he was talking about it. But this, but Ben Tan, when he was talking about it, something really clicked for me, and I got really interested in it. I picked up the um, that the version of Dave uh, Thomas's book 
that was out at the time, started, started learning it. And then um, about six months later, I was actually working at a new company where we managed to talk our CTO into letting us sneak. We were working in Java primarily, but we managed to talk our uh, CTO into letting us sneak Elixir into some of our background workers. That was in 2015. And it just working in that was the most fun I could remember having. Like it, it, it felt the same, the same excitement about just learning the program was, was present again in a way I hadn't felt. Um, and what's been interesting about it since, and I, and I kind of made the decision at that point that that's what I wanted to be doing. Um, I've worked in Elixir since, uh, this is my fourth company working in Elixir. There was a three month stint working in Ruby again in the middle of that, but uh, I still feel that kind of wonder. I still feel like I'm learning things. And as much as it, like, it, it's got a depth to it um, or a breadth to it that you can go pick places to go dive into the depth um, that I did not, the, for me, the, the next place where I was going to have to go in Ruby was going to start learning. I have to learn C. Uh, and I was not excited to go do that, to, you know, go learn the virtual machine. Um, Elixir just continues to be fun. So um, these days I'm working as a, I'm a principal engineer at community. Um, I'm one of the only engineers at the company that's not actually on a team. I kind of bounce around uh, between projects. I'm one of the longest employees at the company. I'm coming up on three years. I was employee number seven. And so I've got um, systems knowledge that, that makes me useful across projects, uh, especially as, as we've grown. So there you go. <laughs> First question. So uh, animatronics, you sold mortgages, welding. Are you the Batman? Just asking. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. I'm not in good enough shape. I have a question related to furniture. Um, for our listeners who can't see Jeffrey's office right now, the chair behind you is super amazing. It's kind of like something from the Jetsons, but it's the exact color of a Cheeto. Did you, <laughs> did you make this chair? Where did you get it? Oh, I love it. I, I, I wish I had made that chair. Um, no, actually, believe it or not, it is, uh, it was a, they sold it for a very limited time at Ikea. Um, it was my... 30th birthday present from my wife so that makes it about 12 years old now uh and it uh it's actually uh orange wool and so it's been kind of hard to keep clean which is why it's now relegated to my office <laughs> <laughs> but i've discovered it also makes a great background uh when <laughs> yeah it's very cool looking very in the retro. video chat thanks yeah i'm um, i'm very big into mid-century modern uh, stuff and it's it's right on the on the lines of that uh, you can't see it but the the base is a cast aluminum that yeah. um, fits into that aesthetic as well i'll have to get some furniture yeah. recommendations from you i don't know if anyone who's listening to this can hear like the echoes of my voice in this empty house but we just moved and it's pretty empty in here it's pretty empty we made some furniture. oh the new house yeah very exciting congratulations stuff. yeah thank yeah, you that's awesome congrats Thanks. Yeah, we're very happy to be here. My dog is deeply unsettled, though. He's trying to figure out like when we're going home, but we are oh. home. Yeah, he's confused. Um, speaking of houses, though, although I don't know if this is a house question per se, Stephen, what's um, what's going on with this sheet that you appear to have stapled to the window of your office? Oh, this old thing. So I haven't <laughs> had a chance to go get uh, blinds. So it's very bright. I threw mm -hmm. on Baby Yoda on the wall oh is that i was like what the, is that from the blinding light yeah sideways baby yoda chasing a frog i believe that's why it's confusing because it's sideways okay cool looks really um chic i want to say 
Yeah, that's what I, that's exactly what I was going for when exactly. I took a random sheet and threw it on my wall. Sheet. It's great. It looks really great. Tray sheet. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, that I'm was so really sorry. good. I like that a lot. Uh, so I do have many questions for you guys about what you've been working on at Community, but I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell us a little bit about the book you wrote. What's your book? Let's hear it. I can't remember, Go Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, it's Testing Elixir. And uh, this is actually Andrea and my second company to work together. We, uh, we met when we were working at a company called Weed Maps. And at the time, this was a project I had planned in the back of my head that um, I, I was frustrated because there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of consistency in how people were testing Elixir. And more importantly, there wasn't a, a resource as a starter for conversations, right? Um, and so I had it in my mind that, and then I'd been thinking about this since 2015 or 2016, that like, it really needed to be a thing. My, my older brother was, uh, wrote a book on Docker for, um, O'Reilly. And so that kind of had demystified some of the whole authorship thing to a certain extent for me, like just meaning that it's, you know, it's something that you can try to do. Um, so I had it in my head that I needed to get a bunch of experience. Um, and right as I was starting to, um, kind of gear up for that. I discussed that it was an interest of mine with Andrea and he sounded very excited about it. And so I asked him if he wanted to be involved and, um, and uh, that was what, like three years ago. Uh, so we did, and then we have been working at the startup life since. And so uh, been trying to hammer that out while, while doing it. But the whole goal of the book was to just lay down some basics um, uh, you know, some fundamentals for people to get started with testing Elixir there. We've also just mixed in a bunch of general test theory. So it's, you know, language agnostic, but, um, but geared, you know, with, with the idea of how to do, you know, apply those concepts in Elixir. Uh, the whole goal with it is to give people who don't, aren't sure where to go, a starting place. And then people who, uh, are past that, you know, uh, it's one of those things where hopefully it's a discussion starter. Like, hey, I don't like how they did this. Like, great, let's talk about it, right? So get people to actually just talk about Elixir testing. Sorry. I remember I picked this, pick up this book in beta and I want to give it a ringing endorsement. I've been testing for, since I've been developing, I started sort of like through the agile route. So like TDD and all that whole sort of thing. And it presents a lot of really cool concepts um, that are familiar, but also specifically like how they work in Elixir, how to take advantage of like loading your context and like setup and like a lot of things that you don't, you kind of like don't know to bring over from other testing frameworks. It was really well done. So go pick up the book. I also don't Thanks. have a vested interest in this, but it's a great book. Thanks. All the good stuff was probably me. Probably. So humble. All right. So on that note, I think this is a great time to move into our main topic for today. I mentioned earlier that Jeffrey and Andrea, you guys have a community been building out something of an event-driven system using Elixir, using RabbitMQ as a message bus. Um, this is a topic that is like kind of near and dear to my heart. Stephen and I architected a similar system when we were both working at the Flatiron School, and we've done uh, some workshops on this and related topics since then. And I would love to kind of hear a little bit from you, like what you built, why, what problems you were trying to solve and learn from those experiences. And one of the themes that I really want to draw out is like, why is Elixir and why is the Beam specifically such a great fit 
for a system like this? I obviously, it's a loaded question. I have some thoughts on that topic, but I want to hear from you guys. So maybe we can start with like, uh, what did y'all build? What is the system I'm referring to? Jeff, you wanna you wanna tell the pitch of the of the product, and I can go with the... sure. <laughs> then you can go into the details. That sounds good. So, uh, what community does is we offer a platform that gives people um, who have some sort of audience or following an alternative to using social media to you know Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, an alternative to those things to keep in touch with their audience base and get interactions going. And so, uh, we do it over text messaging. So um, it's an interesting, there's a, there's a bunch of interesting aspects to it. Um, it's one of those things where like, I was not excited about text messaging when I first actually got involved with the project, but um, now there's aspects of it where like, we're kind of removing some of the toxicity of the internet um, because there's direct conversations between somebody and, and, and our, and our original focus was predominantly musicians, right? Like our launch client was Metallica um which was pretty cool um you know we, and, and like paul mccartney was early on we've got a lot of indie bands that have a small following and like it's really huge for them to be able to have direct interactions with their folks but one of the biggest things is that people aren't performing for other people right so when you're messaging uh one of our leaders um nobody else is seeing it and so you're not trying to you know put on airs for everybody else which i think is one of the things that encourages really just crummy behavior uh, with a lot of the instant, uh, a lot of a lot of the current messaging or uh, social media. The other aspect of it is there's no algorithm when people are trying to contact their followers, like trying to give them information. There's no algorithm that decides who sees what based off of how it's going to make the platform the most money, right? And um, so one of the other things that like was a big draw for me is that uh, the way we're set up is that uh, the leaders actually own their audience. They're not our. It's not our data. It's their data. So we don't have any any way or motivation to uh, monetize user data, which um, just makes me feel good or at least not crappy every day I go to work, right? Um, so we've got this product and it's based all around text messaging and it's really interesting because text messaging, um, so I came to it uh, when there was a kind of a prototype off the ground, then they were having trouble with scaling and so they brought me in to um, help scale and I ended up then just also helping build out a lot of the team. but. Um, what's really interesting about it is text messaging is no, nobody, everybody knows that text messaging is asynchronous, right? Like as much as you can have pretty rapid conversations with people, there's still always system delays. Nobody expects it to be instantaneous. And that actually, in a, in a lot of ways actually makes it really an interesting match for Elixir, um, because it's about message passing and things being there when you're ready to look, you know, kind of thing, as opposed to it, um, as opposed to, cause, cause our interface, our, our, our fans interface is not a web page, right? It is their, their text messaging inbox. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of paradigms with that, that work in terms of just how we think about writing Elixir apps as well. And that's actually led to our system architecture. So initially we had, when I came out, when I came on and, and pulled in a couple other people, we kind of split the original version of the service out into, I think, three or four different services with one kind of still big old monolith sitting there. And everything was uh, in terms of like um, interaction between those services was synchronous at the time. And uh, about six months after launch, we started to build out the system. Um, and to be clear, Andrea was there by, by that point, um, shortly after, after our initial launch. Um, and we started to, to look at what it would be, what it would mean to switch over to event sourcing. Uh, Andrea, do you want to pick up from there? 
Sure. Um, yeah. So one one uh, one big thing about uh, SMS, as Jeffrey said, is that the the asynchronous nature of SMS makes it a really good fit for you know an event source system. I think one of the hard things about event source systems is is uh, real time stuff, real time consistency, or um, you know everything that needs to happen right now and needs to be uh, anything around like transactions across services and stuff like that with uh you know with sms a lot of that as jeffrey said that's expected right like that's how sms works that's how everybody knows that sms works you don't have any confirmation you've sent an sms so you, you don't you don't get to know that it got sent right now like it you know reasonably soon it's eventually consistent more or less right uh, so you can that kind of mirrors the way that uh, you can build the system um plus there is a you know, with with uh, it plays well with building services. I think uh, you know a system with many potentially many services. Um, we got to see that uh, kind of leave that out at this point, where you know the system grew and the team grew, and now it's uh, quite easy. There's not a lot of synchronous communication, so the whole system is built on those principles of. You know, asynchronous communication and eventual consistency, and that made it uh, at this point quite easy to build new things on top of what we have um, and have services share information and share data. Um, so that's a big, um, a big reason uh, why this works well. I think. Yeah, I want to jump in there. So to stand up a new service at this point, if somebody needs something and they want to build a new feature that is just an add-on, you know, it's not trying to change up anything that we currently have, they can go build a, um, they can go build out a new service, they can figure out whatever data store uh, they need and however scheme, you know, whatever, whatever type of data store, uh, and whatever their data schema needs to look like, and then just go replay all of our event history at that specific service and let it build its own um, data store uh, over time, basically replaying history so it can actually have its own intentional, you know, its own curated view of our data for it. And then it just can jump into the system and continue to, to uh, process um, after that. So that's how, uh, so that's one of the major, like one of the huge advantages for us with the system. Um, at this point, I think we're around 35-ish Elixir services. Is that, am I making up numbers, Sandra? Like, yep. <laughs> it's like more, more like a 60 or 70 or up to. <laughs> oh, boy. That's a lot. Okay. That's a whole and that's all with, <laughs> Very and, that, and, they, and they all have multiple instance, uh, you know, instances running of those. So the multiple instances running. And plus the big thing is that there are, uh, those are the Elixir ones, and we have a few. We're predominantly Elixir uh, for sure, but there's a bunch of services that are not Elixir. Um, so we we uh, also use Go and Python for some things where they are better than Elixir, and uh, they are also consuming and producing uh, uh, events. Uh, so I mean, it's like it's definitely a selling point of uh, any kind of like a base requirement of any event. Uh, sorry, of any service-oriented architecture, as and you know that that you can build services in different languages and an event source system like we we have is definitely able to to support that pretty easily. We use a uh, we use Protobuf for events uh, for 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 event schemas, and we use uh, RabbitMQ as the as the message broker to to send around events, and those are all you know technology agnostic, so we can publish and consume from Elixir Go and Python interchangeably 
the cool. one barrier to continuing to add, pile in more languages, just which is good because I, I I like I like polyglot systems, but not but there's a there's a limit, right? Um, is that right now and it's and it's hands down the most developed in Elixir, but we have our own internal libraries for dealing, you know, interacting with the event system to abstract a lot of the um, you know, abstract and standardize a lot of the thought process. Um, and so Andrea has been the leading the charge on the um, on the Elixir version of it, and then everything else is kind of we're 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 getting the other ones up to speed. But so every time we want to add a new language, we've got to think about doing that sort of thing too, because they're all grabbing the protobufs and then building out um, you know their own version, like language specific version of how to interact with it. Um, but it's been really nice. It, it, it is, I, I gotta, I gotta admit one of like my best tips to people is if you want to build out something like this, like go get one of your own, like prolific Elixir, uh, library authors to just go like build stuff out for you. It's, it's a great way so to go about If you want to build a system, hire Andrea and get him to build it for you. Yes. But you have okay. to pay him lots and lots of money. Cause mm -hmm. otherwise we're going to hold on to him. He likes his job. Fair enough, fair enough. Can confirm. I think that was our mistake, Sophie. I think it was just you and me. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Something I'm curious about. So RabbitMQ fairly recently shipped a new feature called Streams or Stream, which I think is their attempt to steal some market from Kafka and provide sort of that time travel. -y, uh, I can ask for messages message slices from the past that kind of thing are you using that i imagine you built the system before that was a thing right yeah yeah we did yeah we did build the system before that was a thing and in either we could have picked kafka to be to be fair right um the thing is that we i mean there are i think that they have trade-offs um rabbit and is a lot smarter um and a lot slower uh, than, than Kafka, right? It does a lot more for you um, at the cost of, you know, not having quite the same the same throughput, right? Um, with the event system that we have, something like the time traveling between mass between messages on the bus is definitely uh, something we would like. But I don't think that anything that's out there would implement it with the flexibility that we need uh, for handling things like replays and you know and stuff like that. So right now. Uh, we are talking about a system that already has hundreds of millions, if not of billions of events published um, in the system. And neither Kafka nor RabbitMQ are really storage solutions, right? Um, so they're, like you'd be still limited, I think, on the amount of time traveling that you can do. And so once you have, so we've I, I i imagine that we would have probably ended up building this the kind of same infrastructure and tooling that we built today to archive and replay events um and what we have now is, is really really flexible and really easy to use so it kind of really scratches that each of uh, being able to at any point in time just replay any events we it's actually a really cool uh, um way of doing that because we we store events and then we get um uh, I hope I'm not selling out content. I think you're good. Okay, Jefferson, I think you're all good. right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but we're using, we're essentially storing all of our events uh, long term in, in S3 as just blobs. And then we have jobs that feed those into AWS Athena 
they turned them into JSON from Protobuf and they feed it to AWS Athena, which is if, if, not, if, if you've not used it, it's kind of like a SQL engine on top of, uh, of uh, schema-less JSON data. So it just kind of figures out the schema. It's very, I mean, it's slow at querying stuff. It's not re a real-time you know, query engine, but it's fast enough that you can use it for a lot of practical purposes. So we can go and do queries on our you know, billions of events um, archive and it like in a few seconds, it you know finds the events that you want, and you can query on anything, you know, really anything, any dimensions. You can do any any SQL operations that you can imagine. You can do joins. You can do everything, and you can just you know find the events you want, and then from that you can replay those events to the services that that you want to the services that are listening. Um, so it's like so flexible at this point that Rabbit, like we, it's been nice to have RabbitMQ just for the routing features. Basically, everything else is implemented downstream right um, and this is really good because it you were not putting like a crazy amount of faith in the RabbitMQ um, other than just being up and being able to route messages right which has been nice um, to not store anything in there essentially does this answer your question about streams we yeah. went pretty far from streams but I, I just yeah. want to call out one real quick clarification. Um, Andre actually said it backwards, although I know he knows what he's talking about, uh, that the, we're converting the protobuf to JSON, not JSON to protobuf, uh, as we're sticking into the Athena stuff. Um, so yeah. just make sure that didn't confuse yeah. anybody. Yeah. No, you're good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Athena wants Jason. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we we work with a pretty uh, pretty wide like distributed group. We've got a lot of international folks at our company, and like I am regularly awed at how few uh, language mistakes everybody works working in English anyway. So if that's the worst, uh, if that's the the smallest nitpick <laughs> I can give you, that's awesome. I'm glad you sort of turned that a little bit into an answer, Andrea, about kind of RabbitMQ versus Kafka, because that's a question that. Steven and I get a lot in our workshop and I always kind of dread it because there isn't really an answer. Um, and not to say that your answer was a definitive answer because it definitely wasn't. It was just sort of more fuel for the, well, you know, we wanted these features and not these ones, but also we could have just used Kafka, which is kind of what I always say. And it's nice just to hear like a verified smart person um, also share that sentiment. <laughs> My go-to was always, uh, you know, with RabbitMQ, at least you didn't have to deal with Zookeeper. But now, you exactly. know, Zookeeper, Zookeeper is not part of Kafka anymore. So uh, I'm going to have to find a new go-to oh. answer. <laughs> Kafka is, is I've actually never used it, uh, but it's, uh, I think, pretty well known for, for being like a lot faster uh, than RabbitMQ. Um, we are pretty lucky in our system that the speed is not really a requirement for a lot of things. Like we are always, uh, we're, sorry, Let's put it another way. We're not. We we are concerned about scaling up, and we're concerned about uh, um, like amount of things we need to do in the system. But we're not really concerned about through throughput per second as much, right? Uh, so we don't need to be as real time as you you know you would imagine the chat like Discord to be, right? Where you have to yeah. type something and it shows up for us. Like based on SMS, at the time we get an SMS. Uh, you know, it might already have been a few seconds since it has been sent and vice versa, right? So And it's gone having, through a bunch of different systems anyway, right? Before it even right. got to us. Right. So yeah. so we're not going to make it. It's unlikely that we make a difference in, uh, you know, in our processing time. So we are more interested in being able to distribute the load and have a lot of back pressure um, rather than being always on top of things, right? Kafka, Kafka might have been a better choice if we needed to process things really fast, but we're kind of more interested in you know, distributing the load than just 
eventually processing everything, which is, uh, you know, because also because our spikes are pretty uneven. So we get like spikes of a lot of messages going out or a lot of messages going in, but then we get, you know, idle times where not, there's not much happening. Um, you know, as being a US-based product, just an example is, means that during the US um, night, there's not a lot of uh, activity going on compared to the day, right? So those, those sort of things. I, anytime that I hear about like these systems that are dealing with like millions or billions or, or of messages, I, I'm kind of curious, what kind of tools do you leverage for you know, observing these, these event pipelines or making sure that uh, you know, things aren't breaking uh, you know, midway through the pipeline? And uh, you know, what, what is the observability and, and alerting solution kind of look like? Any particular reason that you're interested in that? Uh, I, yeah, I, do, I do not have a horse in this race, I swear. <laughs> I can't tell if he means that or not. Uh, but um, so version one was a whole lot of, you know, error handling and logging. Um, we are now moving over to leveraging open telemetry and uh, actually getting ourselves like system traces. Um, but then even then that's going to be just, we're, we're, you know, right now targeting things like the actual message delivery, which is one of the more um, complex parts of our system is that pipeline. And so we now have the ability to trace a message through and see wh at which point it stopped. So the thing that's, you know, we're, I, I mentioned, I think uh, we're like a three-year-old company, but uh, we're, um, we're, 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 we're a company that's constantly in that place where we're always punching a little bit above our weight class, I think, uh, to use a boxing analogy. So it's, we're, we're always, scrambling to kind of play catch up with our own our own data and our own volume if that makes sense um not in a terrible way because we're you know we're using we're, we're writing decent software and things are resilient enough that um even you know prior to shorts tracing we usually could you know work through the data and find things but it's definitely speeding us up a lot um we've got uh one of our sre engineers um uh i suppose that's redundant site reliability engineer engineer uh one of our sres um has built out a internal you know an, an internal package for us to to be pushing um our our uh, telemetry data over and so we're starting to we're, we're now updating a lot of our pipeline to reflect that that's really cool. Yeah, I think uh, what was it a couple of years ago? RabbitMQ had as like a like a first class uh, plugin the Prometheus exporter, and I uh, I played around with that, and that was that was pretty slick, where you can get um, Prometheus metrics right out of uh, RabbitMQ, and they also provided a nice Grafana dashboard. So that was always a that was always a, a go to yeah. tool for me. Um, um, events are a big big help there too, right? Because one of the kind of for free benefits you get is like auditing and a lot of tracing built in into just the event system, right? So um, right now, for example, we don't really have a lot of observability on RabbitMQ other than, you know, host metrics and, and you know, the general stuff that RabbitMQ exposes. Um, but being like, we have all the events that we ever emitted, right? So we can do kind of a, a retroactive analysis on uh, on that mm -hmm. very very easily right with, with using Athena and um, we are, have not really invested a lot into 
a lot of automated testing of the whole system at this point. Um, but something that we have always potential to do is to build automated checks on the event store um, that just look at the event store and make sure that like the right events have been published when a message went out, for example, right? Like that it followed the given route. Uh, or in the same way, we you can have services that consume events in real time just for the sake of testing, right? Just for the sake of making sure things are up, for example, or that listen to, to certain events and then make sure that the appropriate other events are triggered, uh, you know, given the conditions and stuff like that. Um, so the events are out there. So we can build these things pretty easily, easily at this point, right? It's always a trade-off, of, of course, like being a startup. We can't go and build whatever we would like to make this uh, perfect, but we kind of always yeah. compromise, but those are all possibilities, right? And we do have some end-to-end -end testing. For example, every time we deploy one of our major services, I get text messages from one of our test accounts, right? To make sure that like outgoing traffic is still there. Um, and they're also kicked off on our regular uh, periodic stuff. And we also have a lot of like, from a monitoring standpoint, we'll say, hey, you know, we've got, we've got jobs that look to say, hey, like this was the, this is the, the number of messages that were expected to go out. This is the number that once it got to the edge actually went out. And so like, if they aren't consistent within a certain period of time, our on-call engineer will get alerted um to go look at that um so whatever we don't have in terms of um proactive automated testing for the whole system we try to compensate with actually you know, monitoring and alerting um with you know individual customized jobs to pay attention to the most critical parts of the system the topic of observability always makes you think because i think the way that elixir as an ecosystem treats observability i think is one of its selling points because it's so easy to observe an instrument Elixir code for so many reasons. And you guys mentioned earlier, you have like 70 plus or something like that <laughs> Elixir services running. So I'm curious, I mean, that's that's a lot of services and that sounds like a lot of greenfield apps that you would have been spinning up in recent years. Um, mm -hmm. Does Elixir make it easier to do that? Seems like you would have had to be pretty productive in order to hit such a high number. Um. I don't know that it's Elixir per se. The Elixir definitely helps in like speed of development. It's like, it's pretty, you don't have to write a lot of code to get a service to do something, right? Um, but I think a lot of it is actually, uh, you know, the libraries that we built internally and the kind of templating we worked on internally. That's I think the thing that makes it the easiest to, you know, create services easily, uh, if that, that answers the question. Kind of like, yes, sorry, edit, edit this if necessary, but was that the question? Because I was, I was not, not sure. It's like how to create, how we create services easily. Well, yeah, but also okay. just with the observability aspect of it, right? And so one of the other things we should call out is that we actually use a few different observability tools. So every every Elixir app that gets at, that gets deployed is using AppSignal. Right now we're still on AppSignal 1.0. They've, they've improved significantly the the data that comes out uh with the with the AppSignal 2.0 stuff and so one of my next projects i believe is going to be actually getting us switched over but it's they're they're breaking changes so it's not been a it's it's you know hence the one to two but so like that in itself like app signal is one of the companies that was smart and realized that they could leverage what's coming out of the beam uh to do it and so like yes we're paying somebody else to 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 do that work for us though effectively right and then and in fact um that that's i think the biggest shift between app signal 1.0 and app signal 2.0 is that they're even leveraging you know the open telemetry they're they're taking advantage of the stuff that's actually increased within elixir and phoenix itself 
um, to do that stuff. And so that's one of the major ones we do. We also um, use New Relic for some of our reporting um, and observability. And then we also have, you know, we, we work in AWS. And so we actually have to deal with uh, CloudWatch metrics. And then our deploy system also provides us um, metrics. And so, and then we've got Sumo Logic we use for our logging, but that actually has some dashboards. Sumo Logic is crazy flexible in terms of being able to build out um, dashboards. So one of the things that we like, would love to be standardizing um, across stuff, but for example, like AppSignal really is one of the, one of the few companies out there that really did focus in on making um, Elixir observability really nice. New Relic has a collector, but it's an open source thing. And you really do have to just kind of go build. They don't have a, 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 an officially supported SDK or package. You have to go build out your own uh, monitoring, which um, I still to this day, I mean, I've been, at, you know, I was asking them, I was one of those people asking them on their community thing, like five or six years ago, like for this, like it's, I wish that I wish it existed because we'd love to be um, just consolidated in one space. But the, the, the short answer is we're leveraging um, an outside service to do a lot of the observability on the Elixir apps themselves, but that is taking advantage of what Elixir provides. Yeah. And more on that topic of kind of Elixir suitability to the system that you wanted to build here. You mentioned that most of your microservices are Elixir. You've got some Go, you've got some Python. Um, one of the challenges I think that Stephen and I faced when we were building out a similar system in a similar library was that we needed our Elixir client for our messaging library, and then we needed at the time just a Ruby client. And we were able to develop them, you know, in parallel and to get parity there, but. I always found it really frustrating to go from deving on the Elixir client to the Ruby client because there were so many things that we were able to take advantage of in Elixir. Um, I'm sure there's more than this, but the one that comes to mind in particular is really having that fine-grained control over how to handle different types of failures and leveraging supervision trees there. So I'm curious, um, what are some of the things that you've really leaned on in Elixir in building your client libraries that have felt like stickier in some of the other languages? Well, definitely. Um, so I think one of the biggest thing is definitely resiliency. The fact that we were able to, um, you know, put a lot of the, of the supervision infrastructure to work. Um, we really, the nice thing about, I think one of the nice things about the system that we built is that a lot of the complex logic of things like that are uh, is, is built into our libraries. Uh, so we have a bunch of libraries that handle a lot of the nitty gritty things about, that take a lot of advantage of a lot of the Elixir features, right? Like our library to publish events essentially, for example, uh, builds a, a, a pool of RapidMQ connections and channel and does the routing on the pool and does the you know reconnections and all of that. And it uses like really everything on, on the beam, right? Like it does, it spins up a bunch of processes has a big, big, big supervision tree with like a few layers. Um, so it does all of that. And it like, it makes it really, really stable, right? Um, and then you, if you look at Phoenix, Phoenix is the same, right? Like it has its, you know, big old supervision tree, Cowboy behind it, below it, it also has its whole big old supervision tree. So everything is kind of um, safe and, and pretty resilient. But one of the, my favorite things is that you go and build out an Elixir service at least at our company, you usually don't have to deal with any of that. You you are really like it's it's really hard to find a supervisor dot anything call in in any of our services, right? Because because they are built uh, on top of tools that handle all of that for you, right? This is sometimes even like a source of frustration for engineers that come 
you know, to work at a company like this. It's like, yo, but I'm not, I'm not using any of the cool Elixir features, right? But, but you are. It's like you, but you are. But you are. Yes. It's, just, yeah. it's the same you problem with Phoenix, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's that people are like, oh, I, 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 I got into this because I wanted to use all these neat features. And I never like think about my own gen servers. I'm never using them. Like, yes, that's you a good are. Thing. It's just that, like, yeah. it, but it's the stuff that's fun, right? Is having to think through it. But but like Phoenix abstracts it all away in the same way that yeah. um, that our internal libraries do. I want to I want to make sure we call something out though that uh, Broadway is a huge yes. component of what we're doing, mm. um, and that, that yeah actually. like yeah I, and to the to the point where at some point Broadway wasn't necessarily um, serving all of our purposes correctly, and so now we've got Andre on the, uh, working on Broadway as well. Um, so that we've got a faster pipeline into making sure that it stays up with, you know, it, it continues to be developed. Um, yeah. Yeah. So definitely Broadway has been one of the biggest reasons we were able to do this so, so easily because uh, yeah. it's kind of the counterpart to, to what we have. We had to build manually for publishing. Um, we were able to leverage Broadway for consuming, right? So the infrastructure for publishing, you know, events on the bus was, it was really hand-rolled like, you know, from from scratch, like starting from the AMQP, all of the all of the things that are above that are, are hand rolled, but the the consuming side is a lot slimmer because it's uh, really based off of Broadway and Broadway Revenue Queue, right? So we're able to pour a lot of the logic in there. Uh, so I, I didn't actually really contribute much to to Broadway, but I did contribute uh, quite a bit to Broadway Revenue Queue, which is the adapter yeah, to feed, feed that, yeah. Broadway with uh, with Revenue Queue messages um and, that and that's helps. probably going back to sorry andrea i cut you off um that's probably one of the that like to actually answer your question sophie about like the differences or what elixir brings like broadway is a really it, uh um broadway is a really solid package that provides back pressure in a way that like we don't have things that provide that same um we don't have that, you know, we have to figure that out and be dealing with that with the other languages that we're trying to build libraries for. Yeah, and it's a really good fit for Robin and Q. Like Broad and Robin and Q are really like a marriage that works. <laughs> yeah, they really are a match made in heaven. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It was we not out when we first bit. started though. So we had to, we did a lot of that stuff yeah. manually. Um, we were one of the earlier, or at that time, when I when I joined the company, we were actually contracting with Jose as a consultant um, through. I can't remember what that program is called, but like had him like overlooking our shoulder as we were. I wrote a module that smashed the AMQP library together with Gen Stage with a Gen Stage producer, and then also had rate limiting built into it, right? And like I that I, I am as a general rule do not like any single module that's covering more than one responsibility, let alone three big ones like that. Um, but it kept us up and running. And in fact, we only in the last like six months, I think, deprecated the last parts of that and replaced it with Broadway. Um, and so even that, like the some of the hackiest code I've I've written in my entire career, I think that's been run in production was still super reliable <laughs> compared to a lot of the things I've dealt with in other in other languages. Yeah, I think this whole idea of building out a lot of libraries that sort of abstract away all the interesting work just speaks to an old and common wisdom that is write boring code, which is like yeah, where you're making the business decisions, where you're 
making the actual things you want done happen. It's pretty nice that that code is boring, understandable, not very yes. complex. But if you're building a huge system that needs to scale to millions of, of users and billions of messages and all of that, of course, you need to handle a bunch of sort of advanced cases. But if you can do that slightly more under the hood, I mean, that that means that when you bring in people to just build some stuff for your services, they might not actually need to be able to build a, an immense distributed system. And I think that that's what Phoenix does well. It does give people an on-ramp yeah. to, to keep it simple in the beginning. And uh, I, I yeah. think if you're doing that with your internal tools for building workers and services, I mean, that sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly really, I think you nailed the, the comparison that I've been trying to think of, which is that we built, we tried to build the equivalent of, of Phoenix in terms of usability and, uh, you know, ease of, ease of usage and all the nice things that Phoenix provides. We've been kind of building the same for event, consuming and publishing events, right? So that you can have, you know, an engineer that even just started with Elixir come in and write logic not to write the infrastructure platform code, right? Or not to have to deal with like process architectures, not have to deal with, you know, connection pools or anything like that. Everything is, you know, built and you you write callbacks, right? Which is kind of like if you if you go one layer down, this is what gen servers are about, for example, right? You don't want to go deal with the stuff that spawning process and sending matches around and race conditions and uh, you know memory leaks and or anything like that you just want to write the callbacks where the logic is right that's the that's the the, the pitch for gen servers for example and we kind of like did the same thing for for events right you don't want to build the thing that constantly reads events acts messages are happening you you know keeps this pool of connections reconnects all that you just want to write callbacks and say hey like you got you got this message this event now do something with it uh, or you know publish this event that's all uh, and uh, then the, the system takes care of the rest right so software development is sort of about stacking your abstractions in the end or yes. that's typically how we do it these days at least um, and i think erlang is already a high level language with very particular abstractions in the actor model and then we built processes or they they brought processes and then they built an abstraction for the gen server that made the process more manageable and you have to you don't have to do as much stuff to keep it up and running and uh, do the actual thing you want to do and then on top of that sort of phoenix in phoenix case like there you have the channel and then on top of that they built the live view so i i guess uh Communities shipping live SMS sometime soon, which is <laughs> we, we kind of we would like to support. <laughs> yeah, we 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 uh, there there is a certain amount of like there's a good amount of work to get from what we have to making it so it's a little bit more generic. Um, there are lots of discussions around trying to figure out how to open source uh, significant parts of what we're doing. We want to very much. It uh, we will. <laughs> I don't. I promise zero timeline on that. Um, but you will start to see more and more uh, packages coming out of us in general as well. So we've got a testing one coming out pretty soon. 
I think Broadway is a really good example of where, you know, where it could, uh, like, it's already really, really high level. It kind of just forked a little earlier than, uh, like, when you mentioned up to the gen service, you know, then Phoenix forked in one way, right, where you got actually Cowboy, you know, and then Phoenix built on top of that. And then the other fork in the road is where you have gen stage, you know, and this generally back pressure aware processing pipelines. And then on top of that, you got another fork where you got flow on one hand and Broadway on the other hand. And then on top of Broadway, you could build something, you know, that just has pluggable inputs and outputs and you just write the processing code. Um, but, uh, you know, Broadway is pretty, I think it's pretty high level too, which, which is it's really easy to use. You know, we, we, we wrapped it, we wrapped something around it just for, you know, more for like ease of development and developer experience rather than, uh, you know, abstraction, but it's, it's a really good, abstraction already i think but that actually i mean a lot of our you know i mentioned or we mentioned that a lot of our stuff was synchronous between services early on and we actually even even for stuff that doesn't qualify as a full event but we need something because it could be more ephemeral we have an xrpc that is still using uh rabbit so we get the retries built in and when we when we translated or moved over to those things we left the core logic the same it was just about dealing with that interface level right the phoenix web part and switching that over and be able to have a different input into the system instead and, and that's one of those things where like the whole phoenix is not your app thing you know worked well for us is where our our logic and our interface were absolutely separate so that we were able to uh make those make those switches um and so again just like another we're it has made things easier as we've evolved. It's been fun. I think unfortunately we're running out of time. I don't want to keep you guys too long, but there's so much here. I'm sure that we could continue to go on and on about. Um, Andrea, I liked what you said about how Broadway and RabbitMQ are kind of like a, a good partnership, like a marriage. And I've definitely heard that a lot. And I think, I think it's a winning combination. So it's really cool and exciting to hear what you guys have been able to do with it. Thank you so much, Jeffrey and Andrea. Um, I didn't get a chance, Jeffrey, to pick your brain about the animatronic monsters that you used to be responsible for creating. So I might have to hit you up separately about that. Uh, and perhaps our listeners, you know, will find you on Twitter or whatever with their own questions. Um, any last shout outs, Jeffrey or Andre, that you guys want to share? If folks want to reach out to you, you know, can they do so? Certainly no pressure on that front. And uh, otherwise, we'll wrap it up from there. So uh, first off, if you want to see the place I worked at, it's just called the Scare Factory. I think it's scarefactory.com. I'm at Heidel Hands on Twitter. Uh, you're more than welcome to hit me up there. My DMs are open. I also have an email address. Uh, eventually, there will be a matching website and uh, Twitter account to go with it. But um, help at testingelixir.com. You're welcome to reach out for help for, for, for how to work on your tests. So um, happy to help doesn't cost anything just happy to to be out there and, and helping people learn uh, also just big shout out to community for being uh as supportive as they are of both uh the work that we do and and actually getting the book out too so Andrea? yes say, same here on uh um, reaching out my my virtual door is always open uh so you can reach me out reach me at the at what you hide on uh, twitter and the elixir forum i think uh, and everywhere and also big uh, big shout out to community. One thing I wanted to call out that we kind of, I think, m might have said wrong earlier is that we will put out more open source stuff from community, but community has been really investing into the Elixir uh, community, yeah. well, uh, open source world, right? So 
when I mentioned, for example, Broadway Rabbit and Q and, and Broadway, like a bunch of the stuff that we did, the community ended up in there. Like we just treated this, <laughs> we treated the Broadway Rabbit and Q as our own uh, internal library more often than not that we implemented a bunch of stuff that we needed that's, you know, just went up in there and it's open source and it just never, it just so it's already quite, there and available. Yeah. It's already there and available, but it, it is effectively from community, right? So we've been like, we haven't really open sourced any, any like significant things of our own, but we've been pouring a lot of time into the things that we use. Um, uh, Protobuf, uh, the Luxor Protobuf library, we invested a lot into that. Uh, we've invested into Broadway. Um, and one fun anecdote is that the rate limiting that Jeffrey mentioned that we had to build internally in this Broadway clone, it's actually now in Broadway because I went and ported it to Broadway. So now it's, you know, it's there for as open source. It's just not really, you know, sponsored by community or anything, but we really did it for, for through and for community, right? So just shout out in general, that that's, that, that's sort of how we have been investing a lot of our open source. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, that's my shout out. Awesome, thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our panel of hosts. Thank you to our sponsor, Graxio, which our listeners know very well by now is Career Fuel for Programmers. And we'll catch you guys next time.